0: Picture a city. Maybe you see a city skyline, peaks of skyscrapers with smaller buildings clustered at their feet. Or maybe you see a row of buildings that march off shoulder to shoulder into the distance. But what if, instead, we thought of cities as an interconnected network of open spaces, a vital urban circulatory system made up of the places in between the buildings? This system is not just a network of roadways. These are our streets. It's where we live. It's how we move. The streets can tell us a lot about what's going on in the city where we live. And just like the rest of the city, they have a history too. Welcome back to found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Almond. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself right here in the city of brotherly love. This is the first in a series about the history of Philadelphia's streets. We'll talk about why studying streets is important and get into the earliest history of Philadelphia's streets. I know it's been a while since I've dropped an episode, so if you enjoy the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with a friend or leave me a review in your podcast app. And stay tuned for opportunities to meet up with the podcast and beyond the Bell Tours this summer. Thank you. So why do I want to talk about the streets? Throughout the pandemic, like many of you, I spent a lot more time outside on the street. It was our safety valve. The street was where we could safely gather, get some exercise, buy something curbside, and let our kids play. The street was also where we grieved and protested and celebrated together. But the street was also where people in the city killed each other at alarming rates. The pandemic has made me wonder, were our streets always this way? I learned that our streets are layered with history. By studying the street, we can understand how our city changed over time, how it looked, how it worked, and how people experienced it every day. It's been a fascinating journey, and I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. Along the way, we'll hear different perspectives on Philadelphia streets, from a historian, an urban planner, and an ethnographer. Our guide to the history of Philly Streets will be Professor Michael Kahn. Professor Kahn is co-director of the program on urban studies at Stanford University in California. He got his PhD at Penn and has expertise in the history of street life and urban spaces. To understand the issues with Philly Streets today, we'll talk to Lily Reynolds. She's an urban planner who's currently serving as the deputy director of Complete Streets within the Office of Transportation, Infrastructure, and Sustainability for the city of Philadelphia. Deputy Director Reynolds is a traffic safety expert and is part of the team managing the city's Vision Zero plan. And to understand the culture of Philadelphia streets, we'll learn from Professor Elijah Anderson, Sterling Professor of Sociology and African-American Studies at Yale. And he's the author of a new book called Black and White Spaces. He's not only one of the leading urban ethnographers in the United States, he's also been recognized for his work internationally. But guess where Professor Anderson has done the vast majority of his work? Right here in Philly. So let's dive right in and talk about why streets matter. You picture a typical Philadelphia street. There's a roadway, some sidewalks, a few streetlights, maybe some trees and a trash can if you're lucky. What's the big deal? What can a street tell me about a city? Well, bear with me and I'll try to make my case. First, streets can tell you a lot about construction and technology. How streets are built and the materials used to build them can tell you about what was available, what was possible, and what was desirable at a certain point in time. And how streets are built is heavily influenced by technology. And by that, I mean the practical engineering of road construction, designing for transportation, and integrating other infrastructure like lighting or communication. Our streets are built to meet the needs of their day, using existing knowledge, skills, and materials. So what does that look like? Think about some of the cobblestone streets around Independence Hall, which were designed with materials best suited to horse-drawn vehicles. Contrast that with our deadly Roosevelt Boulevard with its six plus lanes of asphalt and concrete, stoplights and crossing signals, with wide turns that accommodate cars moving at fast speeds. These are both city streets, but they were built at different times to meet very different needs. Okay, next. Streets show you how a city operates. Our streets are workhorses. They're critical to the function of the city. And since we all use and benefit from the streets, we pay taxes to maintain and improve them. Streets fuel the economy by moving people and goods around. It's how we get to work and how businesses get supplies and ship products. Streets also help keep the city safe. They're designed with a whole host of features to protect pedestrians and cyclists, drivers and transit riders. They provide access for emergency services and supply water in case of fire, They have lighting so we can get around safely at night. And streets are also a conduit for city services and utilities that keep our city clean and improve our quality of life. They're where our city sanitation workers collect our trash and keep the city livable. Our water and sewer lines run under our streets. Gas and electricity and data lines, they're all under there too. My street was torn up for many long, muddy months while all of our utilities were upgraded. I can tell you there's a lot going on down there. And because streets are so important to the function of a city, they are regulated spaces. One way we bring order to the streets is through the community's sense of what is acceptable public behavior. Streets are shared public spaces where the freedom of the individual is limited by the norms and the needs of the broader community. We can't just do whatever we want there. We need to think about how what we do affects other people. So collectively, we all decide what is the proper way to share the street.
1: Most of what happens in the streets is just self-regulated. It's just between the people who are there.
0: This is urban studies professor Michael Kahn from Stanford University.
1: This was part of what Jane Jacobs was getting at when she talked about, you know, the importance of eyes on the street as a way of keeping public spaces safe. You know, what she's saying is the way streets work is that we keep each other safe. And in a perfect world, I think she's exactly right. And that's what we should strive for is this kind of cooperative environment where everybody looks out for everybody else and everybody maintains a space that is accessible and civil and enjoyable for everyone on an equal basis.
0: Too often, what is considered acceptable behavior on the street is not really inclusive. Streets appear to be free and open public spaces, but in reality, public space is rarely neutral. Streets are not equally accessible to everyone. Streets are contested places. There are limits to who has a right to be there and what behavior is considered acceptable when they're there.
1: You have to think about the fact that while this is a shared space, it's not shared on an equal basis. And so by looking at the streets, you also begin to understand the inequities in a society and the ways that they play out on a very day-to-day basis. So you have to ask, you know, who has the privilege to really walk through a, a street and walk through a public space undisturbed and who is going to be stopped and harassed? you you have to ask who even has the physical ability to access that space and or how are spaces modified to make them available to people who have limitations of mobility
0: but there's another important way we control our streets and that is through laws and the enforcement of those laws
1: the other thing that we encounter in the streets is the state the street is one of the most basic ways that we encounter government, because these are spaces that are, at least in the modern city, are built and maintained and policed by the government. So again, all those questions about access and the ability to be there are not just about the ways we interact with each other, but they're about the ways that the government regulates it.
0: And so the street is a place of friction, where fractures in society are on display. We go out on the street to rage and to grieve when we just can't keep it inside. And there's power in taking over the street in this very public way.
1: One significance of the street and one reason why it is such a powerful space is because it is a theater. That is, it's a... Place of performance where everyone sees the performance and it's done in public, but it's also like a theater of war. It's a place of conflict and tension. And I think both of those apply whenever we go out into the streets, especially if we're there to make some kind of a public demonstration or communicate some kind of political message.
0: Few of us are actively thinking about streets like this. Most of us are out on the street on a daily basis, just living our everyday lives. But each of us is an actor in the drama of the street, when we walk, when we ride, when we stop to talk, when we wait for the bus. We're leaving our mark on the street when we post a sign, park our car, spray graffiti, or ride a skateboard over a curb. But the streets also leave their mark on us because the street is a place that we experience. These small everyday experiences build up over time and create associations and emotions that shape our lives. It's this way that streets become meaningful. Here's Professor Kahn again. You know,
1: that's part of what spaces have is this rich set of associations. And anytime you're in that space, you're remembering everything that you've ever done there or everything you've seen or been a part of there. And that's why they are such such powerful environments. That's why, you know, I study urban studies.
0: <laughs> so why is it important to understand the history of our streets? Streets reflect the shared knowledge and social divisions of a community at a certain time and in a certain place. They can help us understand what day-to-day life was like.
1: The streets are where we encounter each other. The streets are the most basic public space of the city. And so by understanding the history of this space, we begin to understand the history of how groups and individuals interacted in the past in the most kind of day-to-day basic ways.
0: This history is so important and I can't say it better than Professor Kahn.
1: The other interesting thing about studying the history of the streets is that it just reinforces this idea that everything has a history. You know, it's a space that we take so for granted. We just assume it's part of the background. It's always been there. It's just part of the kind of urban furniture. And studying it and realizing that, no, it has not always been this way. It has really changed. It has been different. People thought of it in different ways. People used it in different ways. The city regulated it in different ways. And that the way it is now is the product of choices that we have made collectively, that people have made over time. And that if we've made choices to make it this way, we could make choices to make it different.
0: History teaches us that we can make choices to do things differently. If you take away anything from this podcast, please let it be that. Okay, so let's talk about Philly streets. First, let's get our heads around the magnitude of our streets. Philadelphia is about 130-ish square miles in size. A third of the city's land does not have a building sitting on it and is open for public use. This area includes both public parkland and our city streets. If we break down this area, Philly parks account for about 13% of Philly's total land area, while our streets take up a whopping 19% of the city. If you're more comfortable with linear miles, the city's Department of Streets says it manages over 2,500 miles of streets and highways. Just to put this in perspective, if we could somehow squish together all of our city streets down to the south of the city between the Delaware and Schuylkill Rivers, our streets would cover the area stretching from the Naval Yard to about Lehigh Avenue, just north of Temple's main campus. So streets are a huge part of our city. There's just so much of them. Next, we've got to talk about the grid. Philadelphia streets are organized along a predictable grid pattern, with numbered streets intersecting at 90-degree angles with named streets. This pattern was first envisioned in 1683 for the small area we now know as Center City. But this grid was faithfully carried through the rest of the city as it grew and merged with outlying areas in the 19th century, when the city consolidated into the boundaries that we know today. So it was really a bunch of city surveyors and clerks in the 1800s who deserve the credit for expanding William Penn's original vision to the rest of the city. This grid was repeated north, south, and west. In some parts of the city, the city's grid takes a 45 degree turn to follow the lowlands along the rivers, like in the northeast from Port Richmond to Holmesburg, or in the southwest from Baltimore Avenue south to Eastwick. But it's still laid out in a grid. Philadelphia's street grid was the defining feature of the city. It was often the first thing that visitors to Philadelphia talked about. Usually they remarked on how relentless and, let's face it, boring the grid was. Where were the quaintly crooked streets? or the grand avenues with lovely views? But they almost all admitted that our street system made it really easy to find your way around. Whether you're going to 40th and Market or 3rd and Only, the system works. But before we even get to William Penn and his well-regulated street grid, our story about Philly streets really needs to start a bit further back in time. Because if you look closely at Philly streets, you'll notice a bunch of avenues that deviate from the grid. Streets like Passyunk, Germantown, Rising Sun and Ridge Avenues. What's going on here? These streets are different than an outlier like the Benjamin Franklin Parkway, which was planned to cut diagonally through the street grid in the early 20th century. These other diagonal streets are much, much older. They're remnants of a regional road network that predates William Penn. That predates any Europeans. They're part of our city's Native American heritage. When Europeans first entered the Delaware Valley in the 1600s, this region was Lenape country. The Delaware River was the main thoroughfare for the Lenape who controlled the lands in what is now Southern New Jersey and New York, and Eastern Pennsylvania. In addition to the river, the Lenape also used an extensive network of trails and paths over land. And the area we know as Philadelphia was already a significant place for the Lenape, where many major paths came together. These trail networks were far-reaching, connecting the Lenape with each other and to other tribes across the Mid-Atlantic and beyond. Lenape trails followed the most direct route along ground that was as dry and level as possible. Trails were used for trade, for hunting, for visiting family, and for diplomatic missions. Trails were created and maintained by regular foot traffic, shifting slightly as needed over time. Every 10 or 12 miles along the main trails, there were shelters for travelers. And news was spread using messages painted on trees after stripping off an area of its bark. This trail network was hundreds, if not thousands of years old, when the Europeans arrived. And the Lenape's Inland Trail network was one of the main reasons that Europeans first came to what we now call Philadelphia in the first place. In the early 1600s, Europeans sailed into the Delaware River Valley in search of riches. Riches in the form of fur. Specifically, they were looking for beaver pelts. And not just your run-of-the-mill, skimpy Delaware Valley furs. Europeans were after the superior fur that only came from animals living in the colder climates to the north. These fetched the highest prices because their fur could be made into premium wool felt used to make the very best hats. We're talking status hats, the kind you wear when you have your portrait painted. Picture those tall black hats with broad brims and buckles that the Puritans wear in our Thanksgiving decorations. Around this time, the French were establishing a permanent trading post in Canada, and they weren't about to share. So other Europeans, like the Dutch, the English, and the Swedes, came to the Delaware Valley looking for another way to get at those luxurious northern furs. And the Lenape's inland trail network was already in place to supply them. One of the key inland Lenape trails was the Great Minquas Path, which connected the Lenape to the lands of people that they called the Minquas an Iroquois-speaking tribe who lived along the Susquehanna River in what is now Lancaster County. And the Minquas were culturally tied to the Iroquois tribes to the north, who could supply them with the most desirable furs. So, the Iroquois traded their northern furs with the Minquas, and the Minquas traded the furs with the Lenape, and then the Lenape carried the furs over land to trade them with the Europeans along the Delaware River. The Lenape traveled with the furs along the Great Minquas Path, which ran east from the Susquehanna River through what is now Lancaster, Chester, and Delaware Counties, and into Philadelphia along the route we now call Passyunk Avenue. It terminated at the edge of the Delaware River in a place the Lenape called Wiccaco. We know it as the neighborhood of Queens Village. If you were looking to get rich by selling fur for the European hat market, you'd want to be as close to the end of the Great Minquis Path as you could get. The Swedes, Dutch, and English were all vying to control trading spots along the western edge of the Delaware River near this all-important trail. The Lenape liked what the Europeans had on offer and allowed them to set up small trading spots near the river. Not dense settlements, but small trading posts. Though the Lenape did tolerate a few scattered Swedish homesteads, the Native Americans were really interested in establishing places to trade for things that they wanted and the Lenape were more than happy to encourage the different groups of Europeans to set up competing trading posts. It was good for business. By the 1660s, however, the English were the dominant European force in the region, and they were interested in more than just trading for furs. The English colonists planned to stay. Unfortunately, by this point, the Lenape were decimated by diseases that they'd got from the Europeans. Some historians believe that their numbers were reduced by over 90% after contact with Europe. By the time that William Penn and his settlers arrived in the 1680s, the Lenape were no longer able to keep the Europeans confined to the river's edge. The power dynamic had shifted, and the Lenape's network of trails helped European settlers travel inland. It was along these trails that many Lenape were later pushed westward, outnumbered by colonists cheated of their land, and violently attacked by Europeans. But these trails remain important regional roads, and irregular streets like Passyunk, Germantown, Rising Sun, and Ridge Avenues carry the memory of the Lenape across our city grid today. By the 1680s, the English really wanted to mark their position as top dog in North America by establishing a colony on the western shores of the Delaware River. They had the Spanish to the south and the French to the north. They needed to get English people on the ground, and they needed someone who could get the place up and running quickly. So the King Charles II chose William Penn, a converted Quaker who had spent time in prison and wasn't of royal blood at all. You know, I've always wondered how Penn got this job. Well, I found out that the king owed a great deal of money to the Penn family that he couldn't repay. William Penn's father had helped the British government with provisions during the brutal military conquest of Ireland. The Penn family had extensive land holdings in Ireland, and Penn had spent time there managing their property. So it was a cheap way to pay off this debt. The king agreed to make William Penn the proprietor of this new colony in North America, which we now know as Pennsylvania. And Penn's connections from Ireland would, in turn, influence the form of Philadelphia and its streets. Before Penn could even set out for his new colony, he had a lot of work to do. This was a huge commercial undertaking in land speculation. He had to write promotional material that would attract large landholders, settlers, servants, and even adventurers. He had to formalize certain conditions and concessions to regulate land distribution, improvements, and rents in both the town and the country. Then he had to negotiate the actual sales of land between purchasers and his lawyers and agents. All this without knowing where the land would actually be. While Penn was busy with all of his paperwork, he sent a party of trusted advisors to the Delaware Valley to check out the situation. They were tasked with selecting a site for a commercial center with large adjacent Liberty lands for wealthy landowners. Unfortunately, Penn's advance team found that the western side of the Delaware and much of the lower Schuylkill was either marshy and unsuitable, or it was already settled and cleared of trees for farming. They only found one area that offered suitable riverfront to support a commercial shipping port and also had enough available adjacent land. And they had to negotiate with existing Swedish landowners to secure the spot. So once they had identified the site, they just had to wait for the arrival of William Penn. He was the proprietor and the only one who could make major decisions. William Penn first sailed into the Delaware Valley in October of 1682. While this sounds kind of majestic, the situation was actually a bit chaotic. Many settlers had arrived before Penn, and they didn't have a place to settle. These people were strangers in a strange land and looked to each other for support. They wanted to start building a town where they could live close by and sustain each other. Laying out the commercial center became a top priority, but there was a problem. Penn soon realized that some of his large landholders were a no-show, and he had promised these big spenders riverfront properties in the commercial center. The advance team simply couldn't find a big enough stretch of riverfront along the Delaware to accommodate all of the purchasers. So Penn devised a compromise. He would acquire land along the Schuylkill River and extend the commercial center all the way from the Delaware to the Schuylkill, from river to river, east to west. He would give the absent land purchasers lots on the less desirable Schuylkill side. The settlers who had already arrived would have lots concentrated on the Delaware side. This left plenty of room in the center for people to settle in later. The small commercial center was now conceived on the scale of a city. After approving the site and establishing the footprint of the future city, Penn soon left and traveled through most of November. He had to make a formal government visit to New York. He was also at work drafting a constitution of proposed laws, which was scheduled to be reviewed in early December. He was busy. So Penn left the details of the new town in the hands of an old friend, Thomas Holm, who he knew from Ireland. Holm was an experienced surveyor for the British government and had contributed to the comprehensive Down survey of Ireland. This survey was remarkably thorough, but its intended purpose was to ruthlessly strip the Catholics in Ireland of their land. Holm was perhaps uniquely qualified to lay out a new colonial settlement in a strange land. Historians have argued that it was Thomas Holm who actually designed the original gridded street plan for Philadelphia, not Penn. Holm would have been familiar with the grid street plan, which was typical of British military settlements in Ireland. While many civilizations developed a street grid for its cities, Holm would have been most familiar with its use to establish British military garrisons in Ireland. And it was Holm who understood the actual terrain of the selected site along the Delaware. Holm drew the portrait of the future city of Philadelphia in 1683. It included just the two square miles of what we call center city today. It was laid out from river to river with a regular grid of streets intersecting at 90 degree angles. The original plan called for the streets to be uniform in width, with the exception of the much wider streets of Broad Street, running north-south, and High Street, what we now call Market Street, running east-west. The regularity of the grid was only interrupted by five public squares. Four were set aside as public open land, which we now know as Franklin Square, Washington Square, Rittenhouse Square, and Logan Circle. The central square was reserved for, quote, houses of public affairs. And that center square is now where City Hall sits. Now, Penn would certainly have reviewed and approved Holmes's proposed portrait of the city during his short visit at the end of November. But Penn was soon off again to establish the laws of the colony in Upland, which we know as Chester, and to dispute the borders of his colony with Lord Baltimore in Maryland. When Penn returned in late December 1682, the survey team had been busy under Thomas Holmes' direction. They had physically cleared and staked out the area from current-day streets Arch to Walnut, from the Delaware to as far as perhaps four blocks to the west. Initially, these staked out streets were named for prominent landholders, such as Claypool, Songhurst, and of course, Holm Street, which we now call Arch Street. By the summer of 1683, the surveyors had staked out the first three streets that ran parallel to the Schuylkill, all the way on the west side of the new town. These streets were originally called Schuylkill First or Schuylkill Second, to distinguish them from the streets on the Delaware side. The surveyors also located the highest point within the town limits, which was to become the Central Square. This location ended up being slightly closer to the Schuylkill than the Delaware, rather than smack in the center as shown in Holmes' original portrait. Once they finalized the location of the Central Square, surveyors could then establish the location of the wide north-south running Broad Street. At this point, the main features of Holmes's grid plan were finally staked out on the ground. So by the end of 1683, Penn can boast that his town had over 600 people and 100 houses. Wharves along the Delaware were soon negotiated with private landholders, who would build them at their own expense in return for receiving long leases. The commercial center, now laid out on the scale of a city, was taking shape, at least on a surveyor's plan. Though the future Philadelphia was really little more than a frontier town at this point, people were living in rough-hewn log houses built with some help from the earlier Swedish settlers. There was very little brick to be had. Some settlers still lived in shelters dug into the earth, and the streets would have been full of tree stumps and mud, where pigs and chickens freely roamed. To be fair, they'd come a long way in a year, but 1683 was the end of the honeymoon period for Penn. Soon afterwards, the communal fervor of that first year gave way to discontent, primarily among the wealthy elite who were unhappy with their lot and were suspicious of the proprietor's extensive powers. But these squabbles would have to wait because Penn had an even bigger problem. His claims to the colony of Pennsylvania were under attack from Lord Baltimore in Maryland, who was on his way to England to make his case. In 1684, Penn also left for England to handle things in person. But before he left, Penn made sure to get in a dig at the wealthy landholders. He removed their names from the streets of Philadelphia. Instead, he renamed the town streets after trees, pine, spruce, walnut, and chestnut. Take that, you ungrateful wretches. We'll leave it here for now, as Penn sails away. We've seen Philadelphia emerge from a Native American landscape, where it was an important part of the Lenape trade network, a hub within an existing inland trail system And many of our streets that don't conform to the grid are reminders of this region's Native American heritage. We've watched William Penn's town grow from an ambitious portrait on paper to a real frontier settlement, with our city's future streets staked out on the ground. But things are not looking great. The wealthy settlers are grumbling, and Penn is off to England, where he's about to get caught in some royal upheaval. In the next episode, we'll pick up where we left off and see how Philadelphia and its streets fared during the 1700s. Thank you for listening to the Found in Philadelphia podcast. Please check out the podcast website to learn more. You'll find some period maps and you can see a list of my sources. This podcast was researched, written, hosted, recorded, and edited by me, Laurie Amitt. So all mistakes are my fault. Cyril Tayandi is the best audio engineer ever and head of Drexel University's Mad Dragon Recording Studios.